Okay, we're being recorded. Here we go. Um, last week we got kind of cut off in the middle of the class, so I'm going to try to cover maybe a few things that we didn't get to last week. I think we really got to the meat of it last week. And then uh, maybe we'll be able to get ahead and talk a little bit about the meaning of history. Some folks might be disappointed we aren't already talking about things like the rapture or the antichrist or those kind of things. There's a reason. We're getting to it. But I think uh, that you're not going to be able to understand those things that have kind of been popularized, those things that we come to really think about whenever we think about the end times. You're not going to be able to think about those well unless you have a really good framework for, for how all of the scriptures, both the Old and New Testament, both are forward-looking, they're both looking ahead to the end, or if you look at it a different way, the renewal of all things, the beginning of all things. And so, if you have that framework together, I think it really helps you to better understand the things that sometimes seem more interesting right off. But we'll get to that, and uh, I want you to feel free to ask questions the whole way through. I might be saying a lot of stuff that doesn't seem right or seems new or whatever. And so we're probably going to learn better if we just talk it out and say, I don't understand that. And so the more we interact together, I think the better it'll be. Um, So over and over, we've been kind of pointing out how both the Old and the New Testament are uh, forward-looking. They're looking ahead to a moment whenever God will show up and consummate all things, make all things new. Uh, It was true of the Old Testament. Remember, we have described the way that Old Testament believers kind of viewed history based on the the Old Testament is they kind of looked at history in two parts. Uh, This age, that was... That, that, in other words, means the age that they were currently in. And they were looking ahead to a future age, the age to come. Whenever, at this point in history, God would show up, intervene in a dramatic way like never before. And this, this day, this intervention in history was described in a lot of different ways like the day of the Lord. Uh, The prophets in particular are talking about the day of the Lord constantly. Uh, There's also phrases that are used in the Old Testament, like in latter days, in the last days. Moses uh, speaks of latter days. They're all talking about this point in history where they envision God showing up in a way never seen before, ushering in His kingdom, fixing all things that are broken, you know, this coming king, this messianic king that would be the son of David would come, establish God's kingdom over all the earth, justice would roll down like a river, just all these just wonderful, beautiful pictures of what would happen whenever God showed up. And then the age to come would be life everlasting that would be characterized by the way things ought to be. No more war, 
peace covering all the earth, new creation. We, we looked at all of those things in the Old Testament. So sometimes we just think eschatology or the end times is just a New Testament phenomenon. Well, it's not. It's really ever since the beginning. Remember, we looked at Genesis 3.15 where God says, I'm going to fix this thing, and I'm going to fix it through the seed of the woman. And so the whole Bible is forward-looking to the consummation of all things. Well, last week we got into uh, the fact that this view that the Old Testament believers had gets modified, right? Things change. Remember, they expected it to all come at once. But what actually happens is that whenever this day comes, this day of the Lord, whenever the Messianic King comes, He doesn't do it all at once. Right? We talked about that last week. He does a great deal, but leaves a great deal yet to be completed. And and that, that was a bit of a surprise to believers whenever Je- uh, Jesus showed up. Remember we talked about John the Baptist? You know, Jesus shows up. John the Baptist had ushered him in. He was the, the prophet to end all prophets. John the Baptist was. And after he has introduced Jesus as the herald of the king, he steps to the background, says, it's his show now. Well, then Herod puts Jesus, I mean, puts John in jail. And John's a little confused by this. He's going back and he's reading Isaiah and he's reading the Old Testament. He's like, ah, ha, yeah, yeah. So something went wrong here. He's not following the script I expected him to. And so he gets his disciples together. This is all uh, Matthew 11 here. And he says, uh, hey, go to Jesus and say, are you the one? Are we supposed to be looking for somebody else? Because you're confusing me here. Because his expectation, naturally so, you remember as we looked at the Old Testament, it's like, boom, you know, Messiah comes to nobody can resist him. He comes, you know, riding on the clouds of heaven. He comes, you know, with, with great military might. He comes and his, his government, you know, will see no end. You know, all of these things. So that was really part of what formed John the Baptist's picture of what Messiah would do. And so he's confused. He sends his disciples, and Jesus says, yeah, go back and tell him this. And he actually quotes Isaiah for him, where the description of Messiah would come to preach good news to the poor, to uh, bind up the brokenhearted, to heal the lame, to give sight to the blind. You know, these you know, very, these uh, big justice issues that Messiah would do. And so he's saying, it's happening. The signs of the kingdom are happening. And it's primarily through the lifting up of the weak and the poor. And uh, so it's very understandable why John would say, uh, go, go have a talk with him. I'm a little confused. So what actually happens, this is our point is that what was expected to happen all at once actually happens in phases. Okay? So this day comes right here in the coming of Christ, essentially on the cross and resurrection. 
Christ comes into the world not to bring judgment as they were expecting. It's what God's people were expecting, Him to bring God's judge, judgment on the evil of the world and make everything right. He comes not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment on behalf of His people. That was not something that they were expecting. It was in the Old Testament prophets. Uh, not as prominent in the prophecies, per se, but it was, in one sense you could say it was more, it was more evident than anything else because what was it that formed Israel's worship? The sacrifices. Constant sacrifices. Culminated with this Passover feast where the Lamb of God took the place of the firstborn of Israel. I mean, it's just... It's astonishing. So, this day that the Old Testament believers thought would come all at once actually gets stretched out. Okay? doesn't happen all at once. It happens in phases. And we've been using, we've been describing it in three phases. You can cut it up in different ways. But, essentially, first the cross. Then, after Jesus died on the cross, uh, was buried and resurrected. Where did he go? After that, he ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God our Father. You know, he's seated on his throne, right? So Christ is reigning on his throne right now over his church and through his church extending his kingdom throughout the earth. So I think it's very helpful to consider this middle phase of the church which is the phase that we're in now. So Christ is even now bringing his kingdom into this world through his church. But we also look ahead to this third and final phase in which Christ will return in glory to bring all things to completion. And so I think helpful language for this that I've always used is... Um, Inauguration. So Christ's first coming was the inauguration of his kingdom. You know, inauguration is a beginning. It's not a completion, it's just a beginning. So inauguration, continuation, the age of the church, and consummation, whenever Christ returns to bring all things to their full completion. Does this make sense? Any questions about this? You ever thought of it in this way? Yeah, uh, I think I think probably we have. Yes, that question. Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see it this way. Is that born out in scripture, or does this come from theologians trying to make sense of what the scripture says? The the actual words um, uh, inauguration, continuation, continuation, consummation. Those aren't found in Scripture. Those are just our terms that we're using to describe it. Um, I think this is more of a way of understanding uh, how this unfolds. Uh, another uh, phrase that we'll use, we're going to talk about that a little bit more here, that theologians use to describe this um, kind of coming in phases is the already but not yet. You know, It's this sense in which there are many things in which Christ has already fulfilled in his first coming. 
but yet there are also many things that are not yet completed and fulfilled. So the answer to your question is, this is a way of describing what you see playing out in Scripture. You know, the fact that Christ came first, accomplished a great deal, but how all of the New Testament is looking ahead whenever everything will be completed. So there's this sense throughout the New Testament that it's not yet complete. It's not yet done. We're looking ahead to Christ's return to complete and fulfill all things. But it, but it, it is a, a theologian's effort to reconcile the difference in understanding from what the original the, what theologians had in the Old Testament all the way to the point of John the Baptist and then yep. trying to reconcile that with what that's right. playing out in where we are today. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, really, this is the heart of Paul's theology. Because Paul is always, you know, in between these two poles. He's always talking about when the time had fully come and, you know, this, uh, this real sense in which, you know, God is orchestrating history and we find ourselves in between, uh, you know, these two poles, these two great events, and so really Paul, and I think this brings a, just a lot greater clarity to reading Paul, especially for me it has, is understanding his bouncing back back and forth between looking back to what's already been fulfilled and looking ahead to what Christ will fulfill whenever it returns, so yeah. Okay, well, why don't we ask this, in thinking about this Already but not yet, which I think is a really helpful way to think about this. Um, what are some of the things that have already been fulfilled in Christ's first coming? Yes, forgiveness, absolutely. Ron? Yes, absolutely. Once for all sacrifice. What's that? Yes, fulfillment of the law. Absolutely. On our behalf. Perfectly. What else? Now, there's a great sense in which the New Testament talks about Christ having defeated death, defeated Satan through his own death and resurrection. Uh, you know, Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. Uh, the scriptures over and over and over pour over the reality that uh, Christ once and for all paid for sin, took away our sins forever, past, present, and future, in his dying on the cross. And so there's a sense in which right here he fully accomplished the paying for and taking away of our sins. That's a huge emphasis for the New Testament. Any other thoughts? Birth of the church. That's a big one. Pouring out of the Holy Spirit. You remember at Pentecost, we've mentioned this a few times. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls down upon the church as the church is born. And Peter gets up and he says, Hey, this is Joel 2 happening right in front of your face because uh, the prophet Joel prophesied that in that day 
the day of the Lord, I'll pour out my spirit on all my people. And, uh, and so Peter says, this is happening here. So uh, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is an enormous accomplishment. Christ's first coming. <clears throat> okay, so what, what maybe are some things that have not yet been completed? Yeah, that's right. One, uh, one writer has described it, I think, with a helpful analogy. As he says, we find ourselves in the age of the church in this day, living between two days, um, D-Day and V-Day. Does that make sense? So, you remember D-Day was the invasion and the taking. It was the, the arrival, the invasion of Europe of Nazi-held Europe. Uh, and in one sense, victory was coming at that point. But in another sense, um, you know, battles continued to play out for quite a while until V-Day, whenever there was full and final surrender. Right? So there was a tension to live in between those two. It's not a perfect analogy. Analogies never are. Christ accomplished far more than just showing up. He accomplished the victory. But it is helpful in understanding, even though he won the victory, there's these battles that still play out. And so I think it's a helpful analogy to see that in between. What else is not yet? The resurrection. An absolute biggie in the New Testament. Uh, the focus on resurrection is just huge. Um, that's full victory for the New Testament. That's the, the goal that we're moving towards. That's what, in Revelation, all the souls that, you know, the spirits, people that are in heaven before the throne, they're longing for resurrection. <clears throat> Remember what they're saying in heaven? They're saying, how long? How long do you avenge our blood? How long do you we get to go back and you make everything right. And so, yeah, everything is aching and moving towards resurrection. It's a big one. It's not yet. And that's pretty significant, right? You ever get sick? Your body ever fall apart? You have loved ones that are sick and dying? Resurrection. You still struggle with sin? Resurrection. That's our hope. Our hope is new bodies. So that's a big one that's not yet. What else? Physical rain on earth. <clears throat> yeah, the physical reign of Christ on the earth. Yeah. The coming of the kingdom in its fullness. Where Christ will visibly reign over the entire earth. Yeah, that's a big one. Remember how we, we saw those pictures in the Old Testament? Like about Isaiah 11, for instance, or Isaiah 9. You know, this picture of the Son of David reigning over the earth, justice covering the earth, His reign, His government never ending. Yeah, that hasn't happened yet. It's not yet. Not yet. What about the new earth? The renewal of creation. That's another big one. Uh, you know, Paul in Romans 8, we read this last week. He says, uh, 
the creation itself is groaning as in the pains of childbirth, uh, longing for the sons of God to be revealed, longing for this return and consummation and renewal of all things. What an image to say the earth, the earth, you know, those trees out there, the rocks, the mountains, the seas, that they're groaning for the renewal of all the earth. And that certainly hasn't happened, has it? Um, so there's a great deal that is not yet. And we, I think a lot of times we fail to appropriate that in our lives. You know, that we tend to, I think, focus more on the already. Not that we should focus on that less, but that we, we miss this sense in which what we're moving towards is really the, the deepest longings that we have. Any comments on that? Well, let's talk about, you know, we just mentioned this already but not yet. Let's talk about the tension that that forms in being followers of Christ. Um, this one theologian says this, the whole theology of the New Testament is qualified by this tension. In other words, the New Testament writers are writing, particularly the epistles, and helping their audience to understand the tension of this already and not yet. You see, the picture is in the Old Testament of what would happen whenever Messiah would come, whenever God would enter into the New Covenant, for instance, with His people. You know, Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, these two spots that really talk about the New Covenant. And God says in the New Covenant, I'm going to give them a brand new heart. I'm going to write my law on their hearts. And I'm going to move them to follow all of my ways. And so it's really this picture that in the New Covenant, you know, the problem with the Old Covenant was sin. was our inclination to sin. It wasn't with God, it was with us. And so God says in the New Covenant, I'm going to fix all of that. I'm actually going to move you to always love me and obey and worship me first and foremost. And so that was the picture of the new covenant. And so it's kind of a strange thing whenever Christ has come, the, the new covenant has been made and God's people are still struggling with sin. That just seems, that doesn't seem odd to us that we're in union with Christ but yet we still sin. It just seems normal to us. Well, to the scriptures, especially to those that had a full Old Testament hope, it would be like, it's like John the Baptist. What's going on here? Why? Okay, we're forgiven. But why are we still suffering? Why are we still struggling with sin? And so the New Testament writers are helping their audience to understand the tension that they find themselves in. Does that make sense? We feel the tension too, right? I mean, we feel the tension whenever, whenever someone that you love, especially someone who's a follower of Christ, suffers. It's a great tension you feel there. And I think understanding this already and not yet really helps you to understand why are we still suffer? Why are we still, why is everything still broken? Because Christ has come. I'm in union with Christ. Why do I still struggle with sin? Well, it's because it hasn't, it hasn't yet been consummated, all things. We haven't yet been glorified. 
Make sense? Uh, it's, it's really interesting to see the difference uh, between the book of Galatians and the book of Corinthians, which if you read them alongside each other, you would say, is he really saying the same thing here? Um, but what really brings to light the difference in what Paul is emphasizing in Galatians and what he's emphasizing in Corinthians is understanding their situation. You see, the, the Galatians, they were believers in Christ, but they had had some false teaching come around. They had had some teachers that followed Paul in there, and they said, yeah, that's great to believe in Jesus, to receive Jesus. But also, you've got to keep the law. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to do all of these things. You know, Jesus is good, but you've also got to do all of these things. And so, they, they, had, um, they had too much not yet. Does that make sense? I'm going to write these up here. Does it make sense what I'm meaning whenever I say already and not yet? So they had too much not yet. You know, here they are thinking Christ hasn't yet accomplished our full forgiveness of sin. And so they're kind of still in bondage to the law. And so what Paul's saying in Galatians is, don't you see? He's already paid for all of this. You're free. He's screaming that to them. He's emphasizing that, focusing on that. Because they failed to appropriate how much Christ had already accomplished. The Corinthians are just the opposite. The Corinthians are having a party. I mean, they're, they're going wild. You know, they're having communion together. And they're all getting drunk. And, and see, their problem was they had too much already. They think because Christ has come, we can do whatever we want to do. We're in union with Him. We're reigning with Him. And Paul says this absolutely wonderful thing in there. Is he says, he says uh, you're not yet kings. You think you're kings already. I wish you were already kings so I could reign with you. But you're not yet. Which is interesting to our ears. Kings? What are you talking about? Well, you see, Paul taught that for those who are in union with Christ, whenever all has been consummated, we're going to reign with Him over the earth forever and ever and ever. And there will be no more sin at all. And so they had, they had so much already, they're like, Christ has come. All right. You know, we no longer have any sin. We can do whatever we want to do. And what Paul is saying to them is, no, not yet. You haven't yet been resurrected. And that's why he's focusing in on resurrection in Corinthians. That's why he's focusing in on his own suffering, his own weakness, over and over and over in Corinthians. And so he's saying, no, no, it's not yet the time for us to reign with Christ. You know, first comes the cross, then comes the crown. We right now are in the age of the cross. And so that, that ought to be the shape of the church, suffering for the sake of the world. And it's, it, it just really makes sense of the difference between Galatians and Corinthians. So Galatians has... Uh, too much not yet. 
the Corinthian church has too much already. Does that make sense? And the same can be true for us. I mean, even in this room, I would say there are some of us who are very tender conscience and who have trouble really, really resting and being free in the reality that Christ has taken away all of our sins forever. And we're in union with Him. There's some of us here that that's hard. In fact, it feels comfortable to lean more on rules than freedom in Christ. There's other, others of us, probably in this room, that have too much already. In other words, I'm in union with Christ, so it doesn't matter what I do. He just wants me to enjoy everything in life, and I expect everything to go my way in this life. And if any little thing goes wrong, I'm totally shaken all the way to the core. I say, why is this happening to me? You see, there's too much already. That makes You feel in this tension here? It's all over the New Testament. If you will, in reading your New Testament, just think about this. I promise you, it will really enhance the New Testament. So much. As you look at the New Covenant... Well, I'm, started, I'm saying it? it's been fulfilled already and not yet. You know, so much has already been fulfilled in the New Covenant. Take the New Covenant, for instance. I'll take out their heart of stone. I'll put in them a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit upon them. I will move them to obey all of my commands. Write my laws on their hearts and upon their minds. In other words, I'm going to internalize the law like never before. I'm going to prompt and move them to keep my covenant, right? That's the beauty of the new covenant. Has that happened? Yes and no, right? There's some ways in which we say, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's whenever I sin, I feel it so deep in me because the law is written onto my heart. You know, he moves me. To obey Him. You know, there's, there's parts of me that delights in righteousness. But yet there's also ways in which I don't. The flesh remains. You know, I, I continue to delight in sin. And so that's a great question. As we look at the new covenant, you can say, has that been fulfilled? Well, you can say, yeah, definitely. But not completely. The hope is full, full and complete love of God, obedience to Christ, all of these things. Follow-up question? Uh, doesn't it also, it, it says he does give us the power to be. That's okay, right. But we don't know even how to appropriate. I don't think we come close to appropriating it. But we That's do, right. That's we right. have the ability. Yes. Right? Well, but yes. Then you yes. end up becoming a legalist sometimes. Well, when you, try to you know that it's. Do we have Do we have the power not to sin? Yes, but not perfectly. Yeah. Right? right. And so the great hope of salvation is perfect obedience, perfect worship, perfect righteousness. So even in that, you can say, you know, really this. This in-between of the Christian life is a process of dying to sin and living unto righteousness. It's a process of the power of sin being broken progressively in my life. You know, 
at the cross, Christ destroyed the penalty of sin. Right? In sanctification, he is destroying the power of sin in our life. Progressively. It's good for us to know that we should be progressive. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But at the consummation of all things, he will remove the presence of sin. Right? That's the goal. Not just to be forgiven, but to be perfectly righteous, not only in his sight, but actually. And, and that's the goal for which we're headed. But it will only be complete here. And we need big kind of thing to happen for that to happen. You know, we can't do it. But it's progressively happening in us. So you can look at all of these things. New Covenant's a great example. The kingdom is another example in which you can say, yes and no. Has the kingdom come? Yes and no. You can say, yes, the kingdom has come. Look here. we got a bunch of white people in here bowing down to the Jewish king. Right? That's the kingdom. If you would have told that to the Israelites in the Old Testament, they'd be like, no way. No way. But here it is. The kingdom is here. But yet there's so many ways that it's not. Because look at the world. You know, the kingdom is the reign of God everywhere. And if you look at the earth, you see a whole lot more of this to God than you see submissive worship and obedience. So, so you can look at all of these things and it's a yes and no, you know? It's very odd, very strange to be in the in-between. So that's, you know, given what we are, how does one as a leader in the church recognizing that you have many that fall in the whole spectrum there? Yes. How do you lead that church? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I, think, I think fundamentally you preach the gospel to everybody because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. So you preach the purity of the gospel to everyone. Um, and so, but there's more to say, you know, there's, there's really, you know, if you're a shepherd, you've got to know where your people are, where the people you're trying to lead and care for are. And so, in some sense, you're always talking out of both sides of your mouth, you know, like if I'm, if I'm ministering to somebody that is, has so much, not yet, what am I going to do? I'm going to emphasize, don't you see? You are so fully accepted. You can never do anything to add to your acceptance before Christ. But what if I'm talking to somebody that's got too much already? That is, they're, they're a believer, they're in union with Christ, but there's no fighting sin, they're just kind of doing whatever they want to do. Well, how do I minister to them? Well, I'm going to emphasize the fact that, listen, Christ calls you to be sanctified. That's his will for your life. And, you know, so I'm going to speak a different way to them. And then there's a sense in which corporately you notice things in a body, you know. I mean, we are a church in America. And so there's a few things that tells you right off the bat. Number one, money is probably the biggest issue here. Consumerism, stuff, stuff like that. You, that just right there, you know, I'm going to have to lean on that. Because it's right here in all of us. Uh, you know other things. We're, because we're, uh, you know, 
an affluent church and because we have a great deal of safety and freedom in this country, that uh, complacency is going to be a very big problem. And so, so you begin, you, you've got to know your people. Just like Paul, as he's writing Galatians to the Galatians and Corinthians to the Corinthians, he knows where they are. He knows what they need to hear. And so he's speaking into that. So he's emphasizing particular aspects of the gospel to where they are. Any other thoughts on this? Already and not yet. So really, so with this, you realize that um, the church is full of um, new people, new people who are still sinners. So you can almost go through every area in your life and see this tension. You know, we're new. Christ says, or Paul says, you know, the Spirit, you know, if the Holy Spirit is in you, new creation. You are the new creation. But yet also, you realize that, you know, the flesh still remains. He talks about this in Galatians, at the end of Galatians. And so that's kind of an odd thing, right? And so... <laughs> that old is gone and new is come. That's so, right. But that's not all new yet. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's... Paul is, Paul sometimes will speak in consummation languages. Yeah. You know, you're new. See, that's what I thought when I first was saved. I thought, oh, yeah, I'm done. And there's a sense in which you yeah. are. Yeah, I know. Right? That. Yeah, but, but there's also out. a sense in which you're not. You feel this tension? No. The more and more you begin to feel this tension, the more balanced I think it will make us as believers. And the more it will enable us to engage the world. And so it gives you a great deal of humility, knowing I, I am new, I belong to him, but yet I am capable of horrendous sin. And so the, it gives you this great humility, dependence upon Christ. It gives us a great humility in our interactions with the world. You know, if you just believe I'm new that I don't sin anymore, then you're just going to go make a mess of the world. You're, you're going to make the gospel stink in the nostrils of the world. Um, but then the same is true on the other hand. And so, you know, holding that tension in is really big. And, you know, even the, even the way that Paul speaks of the Spirit, he speaks of the Spirit as being the first fruits. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. Um, we know first fruit is... That wasn't the whole harvest. That was just the first little bit that came off the vine. It was just a foretaste of what's coming. And so Paul, in saying we have the first fruits of the Spirit, means that we have a little taste of what's coming in the future, right? The fullness of the Spirit. And um, see, in all of these areas, there's a sense in which you can say already but not yet. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, we're we've kind of got our foot in two worlds, right? We've got our foot in this world, in the old age, and we've got our other foot in the age to come. They're intersecting, right? So that's a very odd place to be, to be a citizen of heaven, but yet live in a country of death as. Eugene Peterson puts it. 
So if you ever feel weird as a believer, just crazy and schizophrenic, there's a reason, right? You probably should. If you don't feel schizophrenic, then you might not belong to him, right? Schizophrenia is a good thing. That's what you learn in Sunday school. This is the reason why. So the fact that we still struggle with sin is because it's not yet consummated. But the fact that we are no longer slaves to sin is because he has already defeated sin and death on the cross. Okay, next week we'll start to talk about the meaning of history. So where is history moving? And how is God reigning over this moving of history? We'll talk about that next week. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, help us to grow in our understanding of all that you've done and all that you're going to do be people that look back and look ahead. Please come and fill us with your spirit this morning as we come to worship you as your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.